0: In Jesus Christ we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete the word of the Lord thank you Dean as, uh, as they were leaving you probably noticed as I mentioned that we have uh, a few more children than normal with us today which is great and that's a trend at least since I've come of course we we add a few children to your ranks, but uh, that that has been growing, and so we're going to probably need a little bit more help with children. Be prepared. This is a, a common refrain that my family has experienced, being a family with young children, um, and uh, as as the interim pastor here, I get to be a little bit more blunt with you than, than in another situation, but... Congregations often say, we really want a family like yours. We want young children and um, all, all that that brings. But then the reminder is, well, then that means we have to have people volunteering and serving and, and helping care for those little ones to make sure that they're welcome and safe and having a good time. So... Um, Pray about that and know that probably there will be a time, not, not everyone can serve with the children, but um, if the trend continues, we'll need help in a variety of ways working with the children. And that's a good problem to have. Yeah, amen. Okay, so as, as Dean read from, from 1 John, we are going to be beginning, or we are beginning, I should say, a series uh, over the next 10 weeks, looking at the Johannine Epistles, that's a fun thing to say. You can also just say 1st through 3rd John, the letters uh, of John. But biblical scholars say the Johannine Epistles, uh, or the Johannine Epistles. The, the next 10 weeks, with one gap in there, where we're going to hear from the Schmitz about their time in Poland, will lead us right up to the season of Advent in December. just seems crazy that it's already time to think about that, but it is. Um, so I look forward to sharing this with you. Now, now, today's section is really small, as you noticed, and so today's sermon is going to be a bit different than uh, maybe some. There will be more exposition on Scripture. I'm going to do some teaching and kind of set the stage for the, the letters as a whole, so that we're all kind of on the same page, if you will. My hope is that you'll take some notes. I'm not a big PowerPoint person, if you haven't noticed that so far, but there is uh, a slip in your bulletin where you can take notes, and of course you can take notes in your own way, in a Bible, on a phone, on your own paper, however you'd like to, but that over the next ten weeks you take some notes, that you'd learn a thing or two, um, and that the end result is that we would um, live in unity and love in, in, in a way that only the word of life, as John says, can bring. Um, and, and I think if we're already living in that, that that would grow even more. So, uh, kind of four key things we're going to look at today. The first one is the common question that biblical scholars would point out that you might ask about is authorship. is Who wrote these letters? Well, and that's a, that's a fun one. If you've ever met or been in a room with biblical scholars, you know that if you get ten biblical scholars together to ask a question like that, you'll get 15 different answers. And I am, by training, more of a theologian than a biblical scholar. I love the Bible, but I'm, I've never been the kind of person who loves to sit and nitpick like the dates and, you know, how many Isaiah's were there and how many people edited the Book of Exodus and things like that or Deuteronomy. Uh, so for me, um, I, I'm going to go with the, the the general consensus out there that the author was a guy named John, uh, who you know, the, the first, first, and third, third John and that because of the language in the letter and the format, the letters, but really there's one main, 1 John, that probably it was the same writer that wrote the Gospel of John. If if, if you're a scholar out there and you don't agree with that, that's okay. Um, But I'm going to go with the general consensus that most likely the person who wrote these epistles was the same apostle who wrote the Gospel of John, and if that's the case, then there's a decent chance it's probably also the person who wrote the Apocalypse according to John or the book of Revelation, which has no S on the end. Let's just get that out there. So probably the same person wrote these epistles as the book of John or Revelation. Now, a lot of people debate that one. We're not looking at Revelation today or really this, this, uh, during this series. So we'll just chalk it up to basic tradition and leave it at that. And if you're somebody who really needs to dig into those dates and things more... You can buy me a cup of coffee and I'm happy to to figure that stuff out with you, but you'd have to buy the coffee. All right. So with that, number two, date. When was it written? This is the kind of thing that some of you don't care about much at all, but if you do, most likely, most scholars say that it was written around the the year 100. They'll date it anywhere, the three letters, anywhere from like 85, so about 50 years after the death of Jesus, to 110. So a safe estimate is around the year 100. So the church is barely even a church yet, still little groups of uh, pockets of, of Christ believers, Christ followers uh, in, a, in a very ch- changing world um, where they're beginning to have some traction and um, figuring out who they are uh, amidst uh, a, a rapidly changing and, and host, somewhat hostile culture. Now the main thing I want to talk about is what's the purpose of, the, of these letters, this, it, the first four verses were just basically just greeting, um, as, you, as you recall. What's the purpose? And we're going to see a lot more of this over the next nine weeks. Well, uh, most likely, and the thing that, that the writer, that, that John, sometimes the, the author, John, will say he or I, and sometimes they, kind of a plural, like there's this sort of a school of people behind this, so I'll just say he or John, but sometimes it's plural language used in here. Um, he starts off by talking about the fact that, that he has uh, first-hand knowledge of our Lord, uh, that he wants to represent or offer new teaching or, or renewed teaching, we might say, on the things that he has first-hand uh, witnessed, seen, heard, touched even. And he kind of points that out to say that uh, a big theme is that there are others who are teaching other things, uh, either intentionally misleading you, or maybe they're just a bit misled and confused themselves. And one key difference is that they don't have this first-hand knowledge. Now, of course, none of us can boast of this today, uh, but there is a thing, kind of apostolic succession and through Scripture and so forth. Um, but he says But I was one of those who was there, I do know the Lord, and and, uh, I hope that that first-hand knowledge and experience... Matters. So he says, I want to basically reteach or offer some renewed teaching on that which has already been revealed and which has already been proclaimed for the purposes of unity and right belief. This is a common thing in the New Testament. that The goal for the, for the early church would be that we would be one and that we would have good belief and then of course we would add to that good action. Right, right belief is orthodoxy and right, right action or right practice would be orthopraxy. That we would have this, that we would be one that we would have good belief or true belief and that we would have good or true actions as well that we would practice what we preach something we still struggle with today or at least I do I don't know about you he says there are many false teachers out there and, and some of them are false intentionally intentionally like they're, they're coercive, they're, they're you know, manipulating you, they're trying to get your money, that sort of thing. Uh, and some of them are just misguided. Maybe they've been taught wrongly, or they just don't have uh, some, of, some of the right kind of first-hand knowledge that he can boast of. And he wants to clear this up. Uh, he says they're, they're leading the church astray. Um, and he's concerned about that, and so he wants to offer renewed teaching, especially around, uh, with the purpose of unity and love. Uh, New Testament scholar Peter Leithart Leithart suggests that there's an opponent that's identified here, but it's not exactly clear who the opponent is. And he suggests that the opponent is uh, Judaizing Gnosticism. It's a big, big phrase. So I'm going to explain that a little bit today because it's important. uh, And also uh, Gnosticism in particular, probably not a word you use often, uh, I always say, as a teacher especially, it's our, it's our most ancient and still most prevalent foe uh, for, for the church. So, to, to try to understand the opponent so that we can get some clarity about what, we are, what he is positively teaching and therefore what we are looking at here today. In the Old Testament, God is primarily kind of hidden and mysterious no one has seen God and lived is something that's, that's said many times in the Old Testament. Even the places where God is revealed, what's revealed is a hidden, mysterious God. Think of Moses in the burning bush. Right here, we have God being revealed to Moses in this powerful way. The voice of God is heard. And yet what is seen is a, is a bush that's burning and on fire, but it's not consumed. There certainly is no body witnessed. Um, it's very strange and mysterious. It's a hard thing to try to explain. If you were Moses, you would, you would struggle to give words to this, to, you know, to go and explain to your brother or your friends or whatever, what happened. Even, even the revelation that God gives uh, that, that I am in, in Hebrew, the uh, YHWH is where we get Yahweh because there are breathing marks. We just sort of assume that's how it was said. Uh, so there are no vowels in, in Hebrew, by the way. There are just breath marks and then vowels kind of take on those sounds. And so uh, you add in some, some Latin eventually and you end up with Yahweh uh, or Yahweh. And God, I am, or I am that I am, or I will be that I will be. We heard a version of that in Sunday school today. Um, what was it? What was the expression? Myself. Myself. Who are you? I'm me. Nobody else. Nothing else can can say that, but God does. Now, what does that mean? I mean, it either means I don't know, or it means we could spend the next thirty minutes getting philosophical and digging into what that could possibly mean, and we'd end up with a mystery. In other words, God is God, and we are not as the priest in the movie Rudy said to Rudy. So, even when God is revealed, what's revealed is strange and mysterious and disembodied and unknown. Right? Now, uh, that begins... Uh, that's what the people of Israel, they knew. So they had a very what we, uh, very embodied, very physical belief uh, that the people of Israel are known, of like the faith of Israel, is typically viewed as a, as a pretty physical kind of, not so metaphysical, not so spiritual, because it's all about a way of life together. But if you really dig into that, that very earthy way of life assumes this very kind of unknown spirit. Spiritual deity and a giant gap in between, right? And then, if we fast forward to the incarnation, you can you can begin. you and we you know you've done this a million times. You can begin to see why there's some disparity or there's some, they're at odds because you have this unknown God without flesh and matter and substance who becomes incarnate in Jesus of Nazareth, takes on flesh and blood and lives and dwells among us. And this becomes the very core teaching, right, of this new faith that today we call Christianity. That the God of Israel, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the prophets, that this God became enfleshed in this babe, grew, lived, died rose from the dead, right? And will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and His kingdom will have no end. That He is the center of everything for us. Amen? Mm-hmm. But if that's true, then it's, it's, it's hard at the very least for, for people who for thousands of years have based their beliefs on we have these practices that root us to a God that doesn't have flesh and blood and we won't see God in that way. And so, uh, at least what this New Testament scholar suggests is that what's happening is that as Israel is, is seeing what's happening with this, these teachings about the Incarnation, that it's actually driving many of them to a kind of Gnostic-like faith where they want to reject everything to do with flesh and, and, and matter and they want to move to a very spiritualized kind of belief. Now, I'll explain that in just a minute. But in other words, what's happening is that the Judaizers, as he mentions, Paul mentions them as well. Those are, those are basically faithful, faithful Jews who were saying, whether or not you're going to believe in Jesus, you have to first become a Jew. You have to first practice the ways of Israel in all ways before we can really get to that. And that in the, at least this particular group of Judaizers is saying, and to do that you need to reject this idea of the incarnation and the divinity of Jesus. If, the, if anything, Jesus is a prophet. He's a good guy. Right? They were expecting a, a, a God-inspired or a God-anointed human to lead them. There were other messiahs in the Old Testament. And he would lead them in particular against, probably against Rome. And he would be a military leader. and He'd help overthrow their enemies. This was expected. But... He didn't do that, and there's all this divine stuff? No, so let's just reject that altogether. This is kind of what's happening with this group, with this uh, Judaizing Gnostic group. So if that makes sense, even though they were a very physical, earthly kind of faith, because of what was happening with the teachings of the Incarnation, they begin to say, I think we need to push back altogether against... This new phys- physical, the incarnation is a big deal for Christianity. And we need to push back against that. And then the, what happens is they naturally align themselves with Gnosticism. Which, real quick, Gnosticism is so weird and fascinating and it's still our biggest temptation. And in a nutshell, Gnosticism is the belief that um, spirituality, it's just, it's, it's, you know, there's spirit and there's matter and all matter and physical stuff is bad, and all spirit is good. So, like, all I want to do is get out of here and float away into some spiritual, ethereal, uh, you know, uh, other place. Very Gnostic. Not what Scripture teaches. The resurrection of the body is what Scripture teaches. Uh, The idea that uh, to live faithfully, you can kind of do whatever you want with your body, uh, you just have to be, like, right with spirit. All kinds of bad things, weird things happen as a result of Gnosticism. They have all kinds of weird teachings. Um, it, it, it's, you see traces of it in ancient Iranian beliefs and, and um, Mesopotamian, but especially in Greece and in Rome, these, but in ancient Greece in particular, Gnosticism thrives. And it's basically this idea that the physical world around us, it just really stinks. It's bad. Our bodies are bad, the world is bad, everything is bad. In fact, they think that the physical world around us is, a, is like an aborted like, attempt at creating good. And we just need to get out of this. We are spirits trapped in bodies, and we need to get out of here. Some of this sounds like some of the bad teaching we hear today on Christian Radio and <laughs> Teachings. That um, what really matters is our spirits just trapped inside our physical shells. If we could just get out of here. It's actually the exact same thing that the Church of Scientology teaches, too, if you've ever studied that weird group. Well, this is not what Orthodox Christianity teaches. If you want to know what Christianity teaches, read the Creed, for example, the the various, the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. Read the Sermon on the Mount and its teachings. But to, to sum it up, Gnosticism says physical, flesh, blood, body, bad spirit good so for gnostics the idea that the divine would take on flesh and come and and live amongst us would sweat would get tired and then would die a you know a, a traitor's death on a cross bloody nasty death this is not what divinity does Divinity stays away from flesh as much as possible, except maybe every once in a while manipulating us or messing around with us. And our goal is to just get away from flesh ourselves. So, that's what Gnosticism teaches. And all through the ages, Christianity is tempted to make ourselves and our beliefs overly spiritual, ignoring the physical life around us, our communities around us. Forgetting that we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come rather than sort of floating around spirits playing harps or something like that. Okay? There's a lot of fast and loose language there. But this is the opposition. So the opposition for this letter is a group that is most likely a, a, a Judaizing group saying, if you believe this stuff, you Gentiles especially, you need to become Jewish first. And if you become Jewish first part of that is rejecting the incarnation you can have Jesus he can be a good guy he can be a messiah even but a messiah is not the son of God he's not divine he's not the second person of a trinity he's not anything like that he's just a man so you got to get rid of all of that stuff and then in order to do that they begin picking up all these overtones of gnosticism that say really this unknown mystery spirit that's where it's at and and with it comes the belief in secret knowledge and, and, and only, the, only the, the special know about this God and uh, all kinds of stuff that's unhealthy um, and it's still a temptation today. So if any of that made sense, this is the, the opposition that John is writing about. And the opposition teaches, in short, that the incarnation is repugnant. It's bad. It's illogical. It doesn't make sense. It's a perversion of... Scripture, Scripture being the Old Testament, right at the time. Uh, think about, think about the Apostle Paul, First Corinthians, that the incarnation and the crucifixion, it is a uh, stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. It's a stumbling block because it wasn't what they expected, and it was foolish to the Greeks because the divine does not take on flesh. That's not what the divine does it's the same sort of opponent here that first that, that that John is writing about and he wants this the the believers and of course these letters are written this one not so much to particular communities so they were they're they're catholic or they're universal in the sense that they're intended to be shared that all are meant to learn because it, it clearly is a, uh, a an issue that all are being confronted with the incarnation and the crucifixion are key. They're central to the Christian faith. And they're big stumbling blocks. And they're weird. They seem foolish to many. And yet they're the core of our faith. It's the same lesson today that it was then as well. Um, I always kind of chuckle at, at attempts to try to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt what happened in the, in the resurrection. We can't prove that. It's It's... I mean, how do you prove the resurrection? Or, or what exactly happened in the crucifixion and how do we understand the, the divine and the human and what's taking place? These are the very moments of the mystery of our faith. There's a famous statement in an old liturgy, the, the, the mystery of our faith, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. This is the core of our faith. And John is saying, let us return to that. Despite what others are saying, despite the fact that it's hard to believe, This is the core of our faith, he says. Now, a key image that he's going to use in explaining this um, all throughout the letter is light and dark. We're going to talk about this more next week some, but but in short today, to help us understand what he's doing with light and dark because he he used this language already. Something interesting. um, When we we think about creation and when we think about good and evil, uh, we often use all sorts of mythologies and things that could be true, but aren't explicitly stated in Scripture. Things like, uh, the, the origin of Satan, for example. There's all kinds of like demonology and lore around that that may be fun to talk about, but it doesn't really say some of that in Scripture. Like, for example, in the garden, it's a serpent. Who is the serpent? We don't know exactly. There's all sorts of beliefs about that. Maybe for another day. But if we read it, so what I'm getting at is if we read literally, if we read the creation account literally, think of light and darkness. Uh, darkness isn't inherently evil it's created by God it's created by God in the sense that like not nothingness that's different nothingness isn't darkness nothingness is just absolute nothingness which is hard to sort of fathom of course there's no light in nothingness and God creates light and now when, with light there's now darkness now darkness isn't inherently evil at least the way we're created we need light it's part of the natural order Right. It's not even a thing, really. It's just the absence of a thing, if you think about it. Okay. Um, have you have you ever been way up in the Northern Hemisphere or maybe way down in the Southern Hemisphere and you've experienced some of those extremes? You know how, how hard it can be if you go through winter and you have a couple hours of sun, how it messes with your bodies, right? Or the opposite, these long, long days and you have just a tiny bit of darkness or maybe no darkness. It's just kind of, blah, for a little while. Our bodies need darkness. Darkness is a normal thing. Now, if darkness is presented to us, theologically, as in uh, opposition to light or to goodness, then it becomes, right, it it takes the place of evil. We often do that. But in this letter, John is just simply talking about the natural created order when he talks about light and dark. And and here's what I mean. So, uh, he, he likens darkness to the condition pre-light. Maybe in the morning, if you were up and you watched the sunrise, the world is somewhat dark. It's not bad, right? It was beautiful. I watched the sun come up this morning, sort of, from my window. I couldn't see it perfect. But it wasn't bad. It was a good thing. I watched the sun come up, and it was wonderful. So that condition of darkness, pre-sun, wasn't bad. It just was. But the sun coming up is special as good. So he likens uh, the time prior to Christ as a time of darkness, not saying that Judaism is evil at all. It's just pre-light. This is his metaphor. I just want to make sure we understand this. So he likens this to a period of darkness, kind of like darkness before a sunrise. Not a bad thing, but once the sun comes, you want to embrace it and you want to be in the sun. And if you play out Scripture to its logical end, you get to Revelation where uh, Jesus is said to be centered in the new Jerusalem that descends to the earth. And and there is no sun, S-U-N, in the book, because we have an S-O-N who gives light to all things. And so in the end of this created order, we get to a point where it seems like we're created to have light constantly, but a light that comes from God's own being. Okay, So again, not to get theological, but more to just deal with like, the, the written account. In, in the, the letters of John, in the epistles we're looking at, the light and dark here is not necessarily good and evil, although once or twice he'll make that shift and you'll see it, but more so he wants to say, listen, we had darkness before the sunrise, and it was fine, and it was beautiful, and it was helpful, but then the sun rose, and we don't need to go back to the darkness we should dwell in the light. So what he's saying to the people, if this is making sense at all, is that prior to the incarnation, we were in darkness. Not an evil darkness, not a bad darkness, because clearly God was there working and developing a relationship with the people of Israel. But it was a darkness that was longing for the sunrise. When the sun rose, and, you know, S-U-N, but also S-O-N, right? When the sun rose, we moved into a period of light. Embrace that light, he says. Don't feel the temptation to run back to the darkness. And if anybody tells you you need to run backwards to get to Jesus, he says, ignore them. Because the, Jesus is here. The Spirit is amongst us testifying to his, his light and His life. We believe that He will come again. And so we don't need to like, return to some other ways when we have Jesus. And that's what he's saying, that the opposition, if that's making sense, is teaching that we need to go backwards, essentially, in order to go forwards. Is that making any sense at all? There's a lot of big concepts here, and I won't do this every week, but I'm just trying to make sure that we're, we're sort of on the same page. Light has been revealed, in other words. And if light has been revealed, why, why run away from it? We were created for the light. And he says, yeah, it might seem new. I understand why somebody might read the New Testament who grew up with maybe the Old and say, this it seems different, right? It it seems... He said, it might seem that way, but if you pay attention, you read closely, and I think if you read Genesis and the Psalms especially, it makes a lot of sense. He said, there's also a way of reading the Old Testament that this was clearly there from the beginning, that God was going to do this. And God is always doing something new. The light is here, it's in our midst, it cannot be defeated, he says, so don't retreat into darkness. We were made for light, let's live in the light. Okay, so with all that foundation, why preach this now? Why spend the next nine weeks now looking at the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd? John. So here's what I shared with, the, with your church board on Thursday um, about my observations so far uh, of a few weeks with you. Uh, I said something like this. I said, my observations of the congregation is a healthy congregation that is a bit aging, that's eager to move ahead, but also uh, curious about like, what will that mean. There's a bit of fear and anger of the culture around and how that's changing and, and, and it feels strange at times.
1: But I don't,
0: uh, I don't notice, maybe because I haven't talked to you yet, but, but I don't notice, um, uh, like ill health or anger or frustration, a sense of being let down by, uh, by, by, Pastor Sid retiring. That's a normal, you know, procession of time and, and, and it seems like a healthy, natural thing. I don't sense that. And so because of that, it was important for me to, to figure out, to kind of take your pulse. Um, because often in a situation like this, there's a lot of anger or there's a lot of fear uh, or whatever. And, and so maybe I would have needed to, to work in another direction. But instead, it seems like what we need is just some good biblical teaching on love and, and, and who we are called to be on standing true and, and staying firm in our faith amidst a culture that maybe says otherwise. Um, and just trying to lean into the gospel. And so I chose these letters as letters that do that, that speak generically to the church rather than a particular church that says, hey, God is good. The incarnation is the core of our of our faith, the incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection. Um, John says, I experienced that firsthand, and so I want to help clarify that so that there's no need to, to go this way or that way. Let's stay in the center and let's lean into our faith and let's live lives of unity and love, is what he says. So that's my hope, is that over the next couple months, is that um, the teaching will be illuminating and helpful to you, that it will be encouraging to you, and that the end result will be that we will uh, grow even more in the love and the light of Christ. Perfect, radiant light has been revealed once and for all time in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the incarnate Word, the word of life, as John says in these letters. Let us be one in our faith, our hope, and our love. Not because we simply believe in the incarnation. Hear what I'm saying. But because the incarnation is real. This is, this is, it's so subtle, but that's what John is getting at in these letters. Let's not, let's not be one or go to church or whatever because we believe in the incarnation. But because it, it's real. Because Jesus really is Lord. And because God has gone to great lengths to redeem us and has a great plan for us because it's real. This is John's message, which I in turn hope to share with you. Let us believe this and live this out, as John says, so that our joy, I like how he says our joy, not just my joy, so that our joy may be complete. Because I think what he's getting at is that there's a depth to our faith that if we accept that it's not just something we believe, but it's It's true then our joy becomes complete. So I said a lot of, a lot of things here, and again, I, I kind of did some teaching, and some of it was like, what, what's he talking about? Gnosticism, right? So I always do this. I, I mentioned that before. If you're totally tuned out, here's three takeaways to take home today that'll give you a bit of a foundation for, um, for this series. And I'll try to make sure, I say I don't put PowerPoint stuff up much, but I'll try to make sure these takeaways are on the screen for you in the future. I should have sent this ahead. So the first... I'm going to be assuming for this series that that John is the author of these letters and that it's the same author definitely as the Gospel of John and most likely the book of Revelation as well. Okay, So I'm just going to refer to John as the writer and that whole grouping of, of texts go together. It's very common in that time, that uh, uh, period of the world as well, that there would be like a school of, there'd be a a person who maybe leads a school of thought like John, who would have uh, disciples with him. And sometimes they would do writing in his name, uh, and it's like approved by, and they're all kind of working together. So it could be that kind of situation as well. I'm just going to refer to the they, them, he as John. Uh, That's how he does it in the writing. The second takeaway is that John writes in opposition to Gnostic. Judaizers who reject and the the key to that they reject the incarnation they reject the divinity of Jesus they want to embrace Jesus as just a good guy as a a physical man who was maybe anointed by God but we need to get rid of all the spiritual stuff uh, and, and as a result you get this kind of hybrid of Judaism and Greek Gnosticism that that's what he's writing against and it's important because if you're not paying attention Uh, Our greatest challenge, I think, as Christians today, is to overly spiritualize our faith so that our faith is really just about like me and Jesus and getting away to some other place and it has nothing to do with the physical world around us, which was real central to, to Jesus, to the disciples, to the New Testament. The third takeaway, final one, is that John's going to be urging us To move from darkness into light in these letters. This is a, a common imagery that he's going to give us. To move from darkness into light. He is not saying, and I am not saying, that Judaism is evil, that the Old Testament is bad, or anything like that. He's just using a natural metaphor, not a theological one here, that just like the day cycles, and I described that we move from the darkness of the morning to the sunrise, he's saying we've done the same thing, and that because the sun has risen... We can embrace that and live into it. We don't need to go backwards into the darkness. Okay? This is a real common theme, that we have moved from the old ways to the new ways. And the old ways weren't bad. It's just now we have the new ways. And so he says, I'm writing to help you like, dig into that and stay true to that. Does that make sense? I hope so. I hope that over the next nine weeks, as we're going to mainly work through 1 John, uh, and then we'll spend a week in 2 John and 3 John, because they're so short, um, that again, that the end result is that... You know, biblical knowledge will increase that you'll be edified in some way but I'm hoping if nothing else that you come away with a deeper understanding of the love that we are called to share together the love that God has for us and the unity that we are supposed to have with one another uh, in the world for the world that only the, the Lord of life can bring to us that the word of life can bring to us Amen? Amen That is it here uh, I was, I'll, in another week or two, I'll have our rhythm fully figured out, but I'm used to some other things afterwards, and that's not the case. So if you would stand uh, and receive the benediction, and you'll prepare to go out into the world, may you go forth as those who believe in the incarnation, walking in the light and love of God. Go forth into the world. Go in peace. You're dismissed. Amen.